A reading from Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 20. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As the, and the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preaches good news to the people. But Herod, who has been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod has done, add this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, what we ask is that you would teach us by your word. That you would help us to know the one who gathers. That we might be the ones who gather. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the Lord has come to his threshing floor. Right, this is what we've heard. Now the wheat is dried and it's ready to be separated. It's carried to some kind of area of level ground. It could be just a small outdoor patch of land, not much bigger than a, a few yards square. But as you, as you lay out this dried wheat, you might drive some animals over it and their, their hooves are breaking up the sheaves. Or you could be a driver that's standing on kind of a, a flat sled, and an animal pulls you over the wheat on the sled, and you, you crush the wheat under the sled, and you break it up. And then once you're done with that, once you've crushed it, and it begins to kind of fall away, the grain from the wheat, then the thresher, he walks over the wheat with a, a, a large fork, you know, like a pitchfork. And he, he bunches the wheat in the fork and he shoots it up into the air and the grain being heavier than the surrounding uh, chaff or, 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 or husk, the, the husk and everything else is kind of caught in the wind and is pulled away and the grain falls. So the grain then is gathered and it's worked even by hand to free it even more from its casing and then it's stored away. The chaff is used often as tinder for a fire. It's, it's thin and, and burnable. 
So John the Baptist is giving a warning. There's, there's no doubt about that. There's a, a part of this that should and, and can feel like a, a difficult word to hear. But he's also giving reassurance because of this. The thrasher, the, 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 the one who is, who is winnowing the wheat, is going to find that grain. He's going to find it. His winnowing fork, the point is not to punish the chaff. That's not the point, but it's, it's to find the grain. And in this way, we're taught that Jesus, is, He is out to gather true faith. That's what He's doing. Even if they're little faiths, hidden faiths, even if they're at the bottom of a pile of chaff, Jesus is out to find them. And so the question is, why do we need a thresher? Why do we need someone to do this work? Why is this picture so important for us as we try to understand what it means to follow Jesus? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Uh, one is just this, that we need, to be, we need to be kind of separated from our good works, which sounds at first odd, right? We, we want to be bound by our good works often. But if you think about it this way, you know, we're all on the threshing floor, every human being. We need to kind of orient ourselves around that fact that everybody's there. Everyone is subject to being kind of bunched up and, and tossed through the air in one way, shape, or form in this life, okay? And either it's, it's by uh, the circumstances that we go through or we re- recognize that it is God himself who's kind of throwing things into chaos. We are on the threshing floor. And we're going to be shaken and sifted and revealed and found out. All of those things are going to happen to us in this life. Now, for those of us who have an MO, you know, we have a routine, we have a way of doing things, we know what we're going to do from day to day, or at least we have good plans for those things to do. If we have those things, it might be too much to bear that God says, there's a thresher and all of you are subject to him. I don't like that news. Maybe you're smart, talented, aggressive in business and relationships. You have a plan. You have the sense that God has blessed your life or chance has blessed your life, however you seem to understand it. You're going to be okay. You've got it figured out. And then you hear when maybe you give yourself a second's piece, maybe things aren't exactly as you want them to be. Maybe you're a little unsettled. Maybe you start worrying about the fact that life and your talents are limited. That's the experience of being on the threshing floor, of recognizing that someone else is in control. John the Baptist is saying that everyone's there. So the question that he's inviting us to consider is, what's going to be left after the threshing? after the working over that happens to us in this life. The tough news here immediately is that it's not going to be your resume that remains in the great threshing. All kinds of people come to John. He doesn't seem to say, those of you who have got it more together, you don't have to worry about this. You don't have to be concerned. Now, this is just for real messes, okay? You should know. Those of you who are real messes, you're going to be, that's not what he says. Can you imagine a harder truth than the fact that everything that you build your life on, all of your hard work, can be undone? 
that everything you've established can be unestablished. When Thomas Edison died, his good friend Henry Ford was by his bed. And when Edison breathed his last, Henry Ford tried to capture his last breath in a test tube as a way to just hold on to what little genius was left there, right? He couldn't let go of the fact that this person could perish. But Edison goes to dust. And you can't avoid the fact that there is at least something intimidating about hearing that we too will go to dust. Wow, welcome to church. (laughs) Sunday morning, what a great time to hear this. But it's true. The threshing floor exists. And all of us are on it. So what do we do with that? It's good for God to help us to see that the time for gathering, which is what the thresher is doing, right? It's good for us to know that that's not going to wait for us. None of this is going to wait. It's, It's on God's schedule what he's going to do. It's not on our schedule. John the Baptist is like, he's a sign, right? It's like when you're outside and the street lights come on. You know, that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, it's time to go home. The street lights are on. The time for your agenda and your game is going to end. What are you going to do next? Can't keep the night from coming. Can't keep the gathering time from coming. So God calls out to us. We need to be separated from our good works, from our self-control, a little bit. We have to be. We can't hear Jesus without that. But the thresher also knows this, that sometimes our religious stuff that we do, it's just good works and makeup. It's just self-centeredness by another name. We hardly need to be reminded of that, right? As often as we hear it, Christians, religious people, they are hypocrites. Sometimes we have to admit about ourselves that sometimes our religious stuff is just an effort at self-serving. Well, these are the people who are coming to John the Baptist. They show up and they receive this terrible news, you know? They make a pilgrimage. They go out to see John the Baptist, which ordinarily, if that's what you do, you expect the person you come to see to recognize what you've done to get there, right? I've come to see the great John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, who told you to run away from the destruction? John the Baptist is not good at bumper stickers. He is not a good marketer in this case, right? The people that are coming out to him are hearing, something's wrong. John the Baptist gives them grim news. They think they're like super Jewish, right? They've done all the good things, and now they're coming out to see John. But John says, if you're looking for your Jewishness, your way of keeping all the little things in the law, if you're looking to that to save you, then you're not going to be Jewish enough. You're not going to be hardworking enough. You can't be religious enough to do that. How do we know that? Well, God's Word kind of defines for us the difference between those who are coming to John and those who have the the chaff released. Is not this the fast that I choose, Isaiah says in Isaiah 58? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke. This is greatest hits right here. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Just kidding. I don't really mean this. Instead, just do Christian stuff and don't worry about it. Isaiah 58. I'm just kidding. The last part I added, right? There is a question here for us. What's real? What's the chaff? What's the real following of Jesus and what's fake? John gets even more personal. Again, how to make friends and influence people. Here's what he says. He says, don't even try, right? I kind of like this language here. Don't even think of calling yourselves children of Abraham as if that's going to save you. Don't even try and tell me about that. He says, God can make culturally proud good-for-nothings out of these rocks if he wants to. Who are you? Are you a rock or are you a child of God? This is not easy stuff to hear. Jesus does the same in John chapter 8, where Jesus says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. He's about thrown off a cliff for saying that. He's speaking to the religiously self-centered. This isn't going to work. When Jesus says stuff like this, you want to check your driver's license. What's my name? Where do I belong? Am I okay? You know, that's the feeling. What is John doing by stripping us of our identity? Okay, that's the question. So I used to live in Florida, and along with um, falling into sinkholes, being chased by alligators, Florida man being chased by flying cockroaches, from time to time, Florida's great, obviously, from time to time, you would have this experience, which is the best. You just go walking along in the middle of whatever, and between two trees, you would suddenly be mummified by the spider web belonging to a giant banana spider, okay? And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but every part of your body, when that happens, screams out at once. Because you know if you're wrapped in the spider web, where's the spider? This is the question, right? Maybe it's just me. But this is the experience that they have as they're kind of walking around. You know, watching people walk through spider webs unaware is like a, a spectator sport in Florida. But what's going on here is that they are, they have found out it's not going to work. And suddenly out of nowhere, they're like, whoa, whoa what? I can't, I can't just follow the self-centered plan and do the things without having to do the real things that you talk about in uh, the prophets and Isaiah? No, it's not going to work. So the Bible says here that they said in great expectation, which is like the most modest way of saying they have spiderweb all over their faces and they're wondering, what do I do? What do we do, John? How do we handle this? I was reading about uh, the Inuit in Greenland their experience of something called kayak sickness, kayak anxiety. Uh, Researchers call it kayak angst. As they hunt seals along these interior fjords in Greenland, they have to keep it extremely still because they're hunting. So I've been told this is an important thing. Don't let the animals see you, right? So they're on a kayak, they're still. And the problem is in the interior fjords, there's not much of a wind, and so the water's extremely calm. And when, there's no, when there are no clouds in the sky and the water's extremely calm and the sun is overhead, the water looks as still as glass. And it looks like sky. 
And so the kayaker will start to feel like they've kayaked off a cliff. And they'll have a sense of falling. They'll feel this shock. And it's a pretty straightforward explanation of what happens when you you lack reference points to know which way is up. This is how vertigo works. That's why amateur pilots have been known to fly out of extended cloud cover upside down from time to time. A paper that was presented to the American Academy of Anthropologists in 1961, it said this. It talked about this true phenomenon about this. It said, the kayaker freezes on the fjord. Okay, they begin to have tightness in their chest, shortness of breath. They actually enter into a form of paralysis from the sense that they're falling. And the only way to get out of it often is if one of their countrymen come and grab them and take them back to shore or if they capsize and in some cases drown. They're locked in. Pride in your religious purity. It's equally dangerous. It creeps up on you. One minute, you're shaking your head at someone else's inability to follow the moral code. The next minute, the people that you love tell you that you're suffocating them under the weight of your disapproval. You paddle out in your boat and you're always by yourself because no one seems to get it the way that you get it. Why isn't anyone else as dedicated? Why aren't they raising their kids the same way? Why aren't they doing what I'm doing? Why don't they wear what I wear? Why don't they speak the way that I speak? Why don't they watch what I watch? Why aren't they righteous? And they paddle out, you paddle out, you contemplate the heights of your dedication to God and you find that you have no reference points anymore. You've got no neighbor to love. You've got no one to give your tunic to, as Luke says here. You've isolated yourself. You've got no enemies to forgive. You've got no poor people to look to as the image of God and proof of the coming kingdom. You have only you and your undisturbed pride. And John the Baptist says, you might drown like that. So when the people come out, they need to hear, this is dangerous. You need reference points. You need your neighbor. You'll destroy yourself. And really, the reason why is because that sort of religion is no different than irreligion in this one way. Neither of them needs Jesus. Neither of them needs Jesus. This is why Christ is so harsh toward the religious leaders of the day. This is why John says, go back. Don't even try it. Don't even show up like you can do this the way that you can do everything else. They were obsessed with outward forms of morality, but they neglected the inside. Someone has to break the spell and shatter the illusion. This is why Jesus shows up. This is why he comes. To separate us from false religion. Jesus has to shake us free from this. So what's the advice that John gives? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit consistent with repentance. It's advice. Maybe it's like, it's almost like resuscitation. You know, you see here, he, 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 these people who come out to see him, they, it's like they have no pulse. John the Baptist says, breathe. 
He calls them a brood of vipers because he knows they're just tourists, you know? They're just showing up to get a sense of things and to say, yeah, I've been out there where John the Baptist was. He said, I'm doing fine, right? I've been there. John the Baptist, you know, he's a hipster. You've probably never heard of him. You know, it's this guy out and I went and saw him live in concert, you know, and he told me about how to live. But they're just religious tourists. They're out to see the next big thing, then marginalize it. So he says, go away. If you're just here for the show, pursue good fruit and let's see if you have a heart. Pursue good works and let's see if you have a heartbeat. He's talking to me. Labor for the kingdom. We'll find out if you've got a heart. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says. Who's he tell? He tells religious people, he tells tax collectors, military men, live consistent lives. Examine how everything that we do, see if it matches our worship. See if the way in which we love and are generous matches to the way that we worship God. This is a challenge. This is a good kind of sifting. This is, this is a good kind of violence being done to our pride. We need to hear this. Self-centered religion, purity contests, they grip at our soul like chaff. If the grain stays inside the chaff, it gets ruined, it decays. We know the thresher is good and that he wants to free us from it. So we need to remember, as we do our work, he tells us as we interact with our neighbor and our enemy, we're not only living in obedience to God, that's important, but we're also rippling the water. We're getting a reference point. We're being saved from drowning in our own self-righteousness being separated from the chaff so that God can gather us in. The good news is that the one who walks on the threshing floor can deliver us from this. He can. And this morning, if we're going to do church right, we have to recognize part of the reason why we're here. We need to be delivered from that. So at some point, if we're honest, we have to ask this question, okay? God is saying, there's a thresher. There's somebody who's winnowing. And it's one question to say, what's he going to do to me? And that's okay to ask that. But the other question we need to ask is this. Who is the winnower? Who is this? What is it that makes him different from everyone else that wants to sift my life, that wants to mess with my internal world? He wants to change the way that I treat my boyfriend, challenge the way that I speak to customer service reps, the one who sifts how I spend my money and stands in the way that I want to consume sex or drugs or pills or entertainment or shopping or whatever else. We have to ask this question. If you're telling me he's just a super powerful religious teacher, I've got 10 of those. The charismatic guru, those are all over the place. I can, I can have 10 of those easily. If you're telling me that the, the thresher is just an authoritarian thug who's going to tell me how to live my life, who's going to crush me into the ground, I work for one of those 55 hours a week. So who is the thresher? What makes him different? Maybe with one eye on the door, we ask, who is the thresher and what makes him different? This is all I can say. The thresher is the only one, the only grain in the Scriptures left unharvested. 
the thresher is the only one not gathered into a barn. Here's how I know. The Bible tells me. John chapter 12, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? And dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now it's my time. The thresher is the wheat left over. Jesus' primary calling as he threshes, he clarifies who doesn't, who doesn't have a heartbeat, is to find the weak ones. This is like one of the found parables, you know, the pearl of good price, you know, the one out of the, the hundred sheep that's gone. God is pursuing. He's going to find. The heart of God is not to lose a single one. His winnowing fork is to find. It's the scalpel to heal, not kill. This is what Jesus is doing. The heart of the winnower is to find the heart of the grain, and we ourselves are found too. This is what we call conversion when God grabs hold of us, when He separates the chaff, when He digs us out and we're gathered in. That experience of understanding the heart of the winnower is critical for Christian living. It's got to be the way in which we follow Jesus. We've got to see the heart of the winnower. I love the way that Annie Dillard talks about beauty, and it reminds me of this. He said, she says, uh, I had been my whole life a bell, and I never knew it until that moment I was lifted and struck. I had been my whole life a bell, and never knew it until that moment I was lifted and struck. That is when we see the heart of the winnower. And we look to him. And we see his kindness toward us. When you're winnowed, what has to be left behind after your reputation and false religion are caught up in the wind. After all that's done. What has to be left behind is a heart whose bell has been rung. You understand? Whose bell has been rung and a world around you that can hear it. What has to be left is a, a heart whose bell has been rung, and the world around you has to be able to hear it. You remember last week we talked about that transcendent judgment, transcendent love from God. Both of those things are true in Jesus. He gives you a judgment you can't deny, and a love equally undeniable. Here it is again. He cuts through the chaff to our hearts to gather us in. That has to define not only our view of Jesus, but also his church. This has to be the way in which we understand how his church works as well. The church is the one who now has the winnowing fork. We carry it with us. If you think about what's happening in a typical worship service, right? We come into church, we're burying ourselves, we're burying our hearts like dried out, burned up old wheat. And as we walk in the door, you know, and we, we hear this, this call to worship, we find that we're on the threshing floor. We're hiding. Even at our best, we're hiding from God. And then the confession happens and it breaks us. It crushes us under its truth. 
all the weaknesses we didn't know we had, all the strength of pride and accomplishment in confession, we see all the cracks. We experience all the brittleness of the things we do. We sing songs of the harvest, you know, about what God's going to do, about what He's doing in our lives. We hear a sermon that on good days will we'll, we'll strip the chaff, will help us see who we really are. It reveals the treasure in our chest, presents us to God as grain, right? Then we have the table. We have this, this Eucharist, this eureka moment in the, past, you know, in, in the worship service. When God's goodness is revealed to us, He's the grain that fell into the ground, and from that falling into the ground grew up a harvest, grew bread that nourishes us. This is what we learn in the worship service. We drink to it. We eat to it. Every week we receive from the great thresher our very lives. This is what happens. This is his heart for you and for me. We're told that we are safe and well. If God gathers us like that, if he does, if he's willing to go out to wherever he needs to go, to find us wherever He needs to find us, to gather us into His barn. It will make us, it must make us into those who thresh the ground too. What are we going to do? The thresher, he leaves behind this radical equality and unity, this humanity. This is what he leaves behind. This is what the grain becomes. When the church is the church of Jesus, it will make us into winnowers like Him. The world is full of people trapped, weighed down, just like us, lost beneath the crush of the threshing floor. We've gone to other fields. We've put our hopes in other tools of the trade, right? We've given up on this calling often. We've turned to politics to heal. We've turned to economic theory to tell us who our neighbor is. We've turned our prejudices to, to, to teach us about the proper objects of our love. We've turned all kinds of things to tell us who is deserving of the image of God. The church, sometimes, let's be honest, has done its best to grab only the grain on top of the chaff. And in that, we've been like everyone else. Everyone divides. Everyone separates. Everybody gathers into tribes. But do you know who no one goes for? The grain crushed beneath the chaff. No one goes for those. No one but the church. So what do we do? Well, we can't do that. Our love for our neighbor and our generosity, our hospitality and our hope, those become for us like the tines that dig in, that get past the surface that find people who need to hear and believe and know the God who gathers. So what do we do? We have to ask the question. We have to ask out loud as a church. We have to ask this question. Why have we been given what we've been given by God? Why have we been given this winnowing fork? Why have we been given the Lord's Supper? Why have we been given the sword of the Spirit? Why have we been given a means to confess and to be pardoned? It's not just so that we can feel good ourselves, right? It is so that we can do what the thresher does. 
Why have we been given hearts that can sustain heartbreak and perseverance and all of these things that God gives so that we can be the people who walk the ground digging at it? Why have we been placed in a world next to those who are marginalized? Workers in service industries that get food to our tables late. People, for some reason, who drive and when they turn left, into two-lane traffic, they seem to drift into the right lane, which is illegal, I should tell you. Why have we been placed next to these people, right? Why have we been given this calling? Why have we been placed here? Why do we have the big annoyances too, the landlord who squeezes us for rent, or those who have no advocates in our city who are dying to figure out how to navigate government forms because they don't speak the language? Why have we been given all of this? To dig deep to use the winnowing fork. It's our job, way before it's anyone else's, to invest in the love of the neighbor. The tines of the truth shall set you free. The tines of sleep at my bed and eat at my table. To thresh after the world for all those who belong to the great gatherer. That's why. Let's pray that he helps us.